You're listening to Mass Device Radio. In this interview from 2013's Big 100 East, former Kinetic Concept CEO Catherine Berzik takes you inside the $6.1 billion merger of Kinetic Concepts with Apex Partners in 2011, the largest leveraged buyout since the fall of Lehman Brothers. Thank you for downloading this Mass Device Radio podcast. So, Kathy, um, you have a remarkable resume. Um, you know, and when I think about all the things you're involved in, uh, from Becton Dickinson to uh, the charitable organizations, the venture capital world. You, but one thing that uh, really sticks out to me is that you sit on the San Antonio branch of the Federal Reserve Board. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people know a lot about the Federal Reserve and how it connects to the medical device industry. Maybe just tell, just fill us in on how critical this is to sort of the macroeconomic picture and, and why we why this is such an important thing for us to, to pay attention to. Sure. Do you have Bernanke on the line? <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be unplugged, right? <laughs> so um, it's kind of a well-kept secret how the Federal Reserve works. And I was very fortunate at KCI that my head of human resources was knew the person who runs the, the Fed in San Antonio. But there are, as you probably know, 12 districts in the Fed, and the 11th district is the Dallas district. And you often see Richard Fisher on CNBC being interviewed, you know, relatively an outspoken guy. And so Richard runs the Dallas Fed, and there are four branches, and one of the branches is based in San Antonio. And the way the Fed works, each one of these branches has about eight people on it, and they purposely handpick people who can represent various sectors. So I represent the healthcare sector, but on the board also, for example, is Herb Keller. He represents the airline sector. Mark Ullman, CEO of JCPenney, that sector. The people who run Newstar and Valero. And then um, you've probably heard this new term, SIFI, systemically important financial institutions. And one of them is USAA. So that's a really big bank. So what we do every month is we come together, and what the Fed wants to hear is what is going on in your industry right now. They have all the data of what's happened in the past, but what goes on in the, in the 12th, 11th district is what's going on in all of the districts, and all of that information is then fed up you know, into the um, FOMC, and monetary decisions are made. So I think people think somehow maybe it's just a whim of people sitting in a room, but there's really a ton of information that is, tries to be um, predictive and ind indica indicative of what's really going on in these various segments. So you're getting a chance to basically brainstorm with other you know, captains of industry or however you say it. Uh, when you look at the medical device industry and you get the perspective of those other industries, how would you say that the industry is faring right now as compared to, say, airline or energy or some of the other industries that are in there? Um, not as well. You know, I think that the challenges and the uncertainty that so much of this industry faces, so we have a lot of discussions about health policy and about things like the device tax there. And I would contrast that to, I'd say retail is sticky right now, so retail is an issue. Um, airline, way more stable. Energy, particularly in Texas, you know, gangbusters. Banks, reasonably stable. So I find myself in these meetings often being kind of in the last six months because of utilization, what's happened, you know, kind of a bearer of, you know, a little bit of bad news into the Fed from a healthcare perspective. What do they, I, I'm curious what they think of a, something like the medical device excise tax 
from an other industry's perspective. What do they think of when you tell them about this? Well, um, you know, similarly, you know, when the banking industry's sitting there, they're talking about Dodd-Frank implementation. The energy mm -hmm. industry's talking about regulations in the energy industry. So every one of these sectors has some kind of regulation. But when I talk about things like the device tax or things that were really important to me from a KCI perspective, this competitive bidding of durable medical equipment, you know, it's difficult for them to understand. But I know that Richard in particular is very involved in trying to, he's in many influential situations and I always feel he can be a conduit for the voice. So they're very interested in what's going on in the healthcare field. And how does the input that you provide filter upwards? I mean, how does, how does it influence policy? Well, every single branch of the Fed has a really big wing that's an economic wing, economic, economic policy wing. Mm -hmm. And so Harvey Rosenblum is the person who runs the Dallas part of the economic piece. He then meets with all of his peers, and they consolidate. They physically meet, and they consolidate that information. And then you see you know, red books coming out and white books coming out, mm -hmm. beige books coming out that talk about the state of the economy. Mm -hmm. And so... You, let's transition to your time at KCI. And I'm sort of kicking myself because you're also a, a competitive ballroom dancer and I, 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 I totally stepped on the... Want to talk about dancing or KCI? <laughs> well, I mean, they, let's talk about a certain type of dancing. <laughs> oh, of, the KCI dance. In terms of M&A. <laughs> so then one of the things that, you know, obviously we think about a mass device when we think of KCI is, is the, the, the private equity acquisition by Apex Partners in 2011. It was a massive buyout. It was six, six plus billion largest uh, buyout, private equity buyout since the fall of Lehman Brothers. But maybe you could take me inside your office, you know, in the winter of 2011, you're, you're sitting at the helm of KCI. What do you, you know, what, you're looking at the landscape then, and what do you see, and, and how, does that, how does that change? Are you talking about in the early part of the acquisition? Right, or when near? you were, f right before you were approached by Apex. Oh, that would be in March of 2011. Okay. So, um, was, I mean, I remember these things are the kinds of things that you remember where you were and what happened. And I was actually right. at our German sales meeting in Germany when Ron Dollins, who was our chairman, longtime person who had headed Guidant, you know, called me and said, we have gotten an actual written offer to buy KCI from Apex Partners. And it literally came right out of the blue. Our board had not been doing a strategic assessment. Our board had not wanted to be bought out. But Apex, as we subsequently found out, had studied the company for an entire year, had interviewed thousands of customers, and they did it through different market research firms. And they had determined by the time they came to us that they were going to buy the company. Mm -hmm. They came with full financial backing from three banks. So there was, you know, what they needed, they, want, they asked for was an exclusive time to do due diligence. So I literally took the next plane home from Germany. There was immediate board meetings. You know, we had to hire investment bankers. We had to, we used Skadden Arps, we used J.P. Morgan. But it was a very trying time, I think, emotionally for everybody, you know, to try to figure out what to do. And I think many of us hoped it would just go away. I mean, we all loved KCI being a public company. We were in the process of looking at another acquisition following the lifestyle acquisition and thought we would just keep 
building the company we just launched in Japan. So I mean, it was really, it was a very interesting time, and that was, that would characterize March, April, May, you know, and then obviously the definitive agreement with the due diligence was actually signed just about two years ago today. It was mm -hmm. July 13th. Oh, but I mean, you, 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 you said it, you, you weren't at all looking to, to sell the company. You had just, I think you told me you had refinanced right, your we debt. Financed you were our looking debt. to make another strategic acquisition. Uh, you know, you've been a part of so many, you know, several mergers over the years. I mean, this seems, was how unique was this from your perspective to have a written offer and they had a price per share on it and yeah. it was a, a solid offer to come in unsolicited. How rare is that? I think it's very rare. I mean, at the time, I thought it was very rare, and I've subsequently, you know, talked to J.P. Morgan, and since I'm out, I've been involved with a lot of different private equity in different ways, and it would typically not have come the way that came. It would have typically been a friendly conversation with the CEO or maybe a friendly conversation with the chairman, but I think the aggressiveness with which, you know, Apex came, you know, at us is what took everybody, you know, by surprise. So I do think it's kind of unusual. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I understand that there was a little bit of tension in the due diligence process. Maybe, uh... Nah, no, nah, nah. <laughs> Smooth sailing. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about that process. You, I understand it was, it was rather unique in, in, in that you had to keep it a secret from your, your yes. team. And take, tell, tell, tell us through some of that. So there was a request on the part of Apex and a request on the part of our board in agreement that this would be kept private and, and would not be public until there would be a definitive agreement. The definitive agreement actually and the due diligence took about a month longer than we thought in the beginning. We thought this was going to all be done in early June, but Apex decided that they needed more time to continue to do diligence. They then brought in the Canadian pension plan for additional monies, and then we had to integrate all this Canadian, the Canadian thinking into all of this. Mm -hmm. So time dragged out, and the data room and the data requests got bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't even remember how large the electronic data room was, but it was huge. You know, and we were, you know, it's interesting from a communication perspective because you're there trying to run the company, 6,000 people who aren't supposed to know this is going on, and there were only 20 people involved with the actual process of the due diligence. So those 20 people were, you know, they couldn't open their mouth and we had to shoot them kind of thing. But the rest of the company, and there were no leaks. There were no leaks until the week of July 4th. And then there was a leak that appeared. I, I was at Cape Cod, or I'm sorry, I was in Maine with some friends. And a leak occurred that BlackRock was going to buy KCI. And that leak happened in early July. We, our board, had decided that they would not have a public process. They wanted to keep it private, and Apex wanted it to be private. But when we negotiated then the definitive agreement, the board agreed to, and Apex agreed to, a 40-day what's called go-shop period. So after we signed July 13th, we had until about August 20th to actually go out and solicit strategic buyers and other private equity buyers. But the issue at that point was the deal had gone so far and Apex was so far ahead, there was no other private equity. And we must have visited with you know, every major private equity company and practically every major strategic buyer, but there was no way to get the diligence done where they could catch up. We finally had one competing wound care company that came in and that's in our proxies, you know, and made an offer, but they were not able to clear antitrust and all this stuff and, and a 
and in, in the right amount of time. So it all it all went past, and by um, the end of August, we knew we were going to become a um, a portfolio company mm -hmm. of Apex. Now, this is all very cloak and dagger, right? Because I mean, you can't. So I think you were telling me that you were you had people under. Oh, people under confidentiality. You weren't supposed to speak to your spouses, your kids, your family, no, nobody. I mean, you're talking about you know publicly traded stock that could move. And when the deal did close, then you know you get pages and pages and pages, you know, of people who traded the stock. You know, when you have to indicate as a as the CEO, you know, do you know any of these people? Does your management team know any of these people? So, you know, we were really, I think, Scad and Arps did a very good job in educating us about how to how to handle that. In, in PE transactions, I mean, there's an understanding going in that that the private equity firm is going to take steps to cut costs. They're going to streamline. Yeah. They're going to maximize value. How did you handle that? As a leader, I mean, I know that you didn't have any management agreements in place uh, for the transition. How did you handle that, uh, not only with your team, but you know, with yourself and, and with your staff? Well, I mean, it's a great question. And we, um, uh, many people in the company had had experience with KCI when it was private before. It was previously owned by Blum Capital and Fremont Partners. So they remembered that. That was from like 10 years prior. And people had different experiences with private equity. We knew, because by late uh, into the process, we saw the financial expectations of what was expected in terms of multiples of EBITDA. You know, and we knew that it was going to result in cost reductions and in cuts and in people cuts. It was the only way to make the numbers. So you have to internally try to figure that out. And we just put together a massive communication plan. I mean, we were on the road all the time talking to employees, talking to shareholders, talking to investors, talking to our board, talking to APACs. Even if you didn't have the answers, you were still out there mm -hmm. talking to people. Um, but it is, it is just a reality. I mean, ownership by private equity is different than ownership in the public markets. I mean, we all know they're driven by different things. So in essence, did you, did, I know you, you told me you were out there meeting with groups of like 50 or more, things like that. 50 people at a time. So um, Kevin Belgrade, who's here and ran my communications, we put together throughout the whole world groups of like 50 people at a time. You know, because you had to have FaceTime in front of your people, and that would be a message I'd try to leave for all of you. Even when we didn't know exactly what to communicate, management was visible. We were out there. We were talking to people about it. We were getting their questions. We tried to feedback what we could, you know, to them. And I think that did, you know, allay some of the employees' concerns around the world. Very difficult for international people or, mm -hmm. you know, people in Europe, people in Japan who are remote to really understand how is this going to affect their life. Am I going to have a job, right? It always, always all becomes all about me. Am I going to have a job? You know, and to be able to not be able to tell people yes, or are you going to be running the, the company, not being able to tell people that. I mean, it was a time of great uncertainty, you know, for the company, and yet you've got, you've got this overwhelming need to perform financially because you've got your current board, the stock market looking at you, you've got these new people, and you just know that if the company took a hiccup, you know, their offer would go down or they might walk away and then the stock would tank. So you have these, all these myriad kind of pressures coming at you. Who reported, by the way, that it was BlackRock? Is that the Wall Street Journal? Wall Street. That was bums. <laughs> oh, you did it? Oh, you no, wanted to put a no. ton of mass device. <laughs> no, no, we did not. 
But I'm wondering emotionally, like, I mean, you knew yourself you were probably going to be out of a job at the end of this. Is that a fair question? I mean, did you? I think I knew, um, some folks asked me about that out in the hallway. I think I knew by the October, November time frame that um, I would not be able to stay. You know, and mm -hmm. everyone asks, you know, well, why didn't you stay? You know, you've got, as a CEO, you are driving the strategy for your company. You own the strategy. I was very aligned with my board. We were on an acquisition path. We wanted to continue to put more legs on the stool, our bed business, our wound care business, our lifestyle business. We had a plan for more things in regenerative medicine, and we had a whole pipeline of things we wanted to do. Investments I wanted to make to grow Japan, to grow uh, Brazil. And so it just became clear in the discussions as the board consolidated, which was all new, the APAX team members, the, the Canadian team members, you know, in my thinking about what I wanted to make KCIB, mm -hmm. I was not aligned with, you know, it was clear that it was very deep execution, as much cash flow and as much, you know, financial EBITDA performance as you can, and much less willingness to go out and start buying more companies. I mean, I've heard over and over the CEO is the loneliest job. I mean, I mean, I would imagine at that time where you can't speak to anybody. I mean, this must have been weighing on you. Uh, how did you, how did you maneuver those situations? Did you lean? Who did you lean on? Uh, my husband. I mean, I've been married, for, you know, 40 some years. So my husband, yeah. who probably got too much of an earful out of all this, and then um, my CFO. Um, you know, Kevin, who's here. So I had a very, my, my general counsel, there were probably four or five of us, you know, that really looked at what was happening strategically to the company, tried to do as best as we possibly could. But I had to finally be honest with that team that is probably not going to work. And they understood that because they didn't want me to feel conflicted and they didn't want to feel conflicted. I'm wondering, you know, when you look back at this, and, and you've had some time for some perspective here. What, what are you most proud of about, about how you performed during those, those days? <laughs> That's a good question. It had, its, I mean, it, it had its moments, as you can imagine. You know, at the highest level, you know, I bump into all kinds of people in San Antonio that made a lot of money, right? So the shareholders um, were, are very grateful um, that the company did as well as the company did financially. My prior board of directors, very grateful that the company performed well financially. I think the, so those things I felt and still feel really good about. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest part is the people, you know, and the fact that I'm still in San Antonio and you see if you've all read the papers today, there was another 100 person layoff today. So, you know, you hear little by little cut cut, cut, you know, went from 2,000 people in San Antonio to now 1,500, still about 5,500 worldwide. So it's, you know, I bump into the people when I grocery shop, you know, the, I mentor and sponsor and support many of them. And you, there's really nowhere to hide because it's a very large company in a relatively small city. So right. the public persona, the news press, all that stuff, it was sometimes overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the largest employers in town, is that yes. correct? Yeah. And, but, to, but you feel as if that you acted in your best uh, manner in that? I mean, yeah, we talked, you know, um, Brian asked me some, you know, really insightful questions. Is there any way to stop it once it started? You know, we had not gone out and solicited the offer. The offer came over the fence. And when you have a board of directors of a publicly traded company, their board has one allegiance. The board has the allegiance to the shareholders. 
the board doesn't have allegiance to keep people employed. Now, as a CEO sitting in both areas, I felt I needed to do things at the board. Obviously, I'm a board member, protect the shareholders, but I often felt that I was the lone voice around the culture, the history, performing this great company that went from nothing 35 years ago to a huge employer in San Antonio and global growth. So I definitely felt conflicted. And yes, it was lonely during that time. So, you know, but there's no way once that starts, and I mean, the legal people would tell you that, and the offer was firm and they had financial backing, there's really no way then. They, the, my board looked at me and our stock was trading at like 45 and and Apex came in at you know 68 ish kind of number and said well show us how you're going to get to 68 dollars you know and you can't as a CEO of a company say yeah my strategy says the discounted cash flow says the share price should be 55 60 dollars a share you know once we buy something you know it's probably going to go higher but all of you who are involved with public companies know you can't predict share price Things happen in the marketplace. Patents get overturned. You know, things happen. Regulatory environments in Europe, things change. So I think the board, the board is always worried about, you know, shareholder lawsuits and all that. There's no way that the board can just, you know, say, say no. I went through a very similar thing when I was on the Bausch and Lomb board, but I wasn't running Bausch and Lomb. But when the Warburg Pincus, you know, deal happened with Bausch and Lomb, it was very similar. You know, the board had gut-wrenching discussions about how can we make this Warburg Pincus thing go away, and you really can't. So, I mean, what was, you had the ghost shop period, which I'm sure was r rather interesting, but. Uh, I had other shopping I'd rather be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you've had some time for that, that's, that's right. Um, was how, I mean, how bad was it I mean, you're doing this at a time where, um, you know, that's in 2011, where the stock market is just, yeah, you know, the stock doing market. Dipsy doodles there. I mean, how 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 much did that affect you during that period where we had the debt crisis and things like that, and the stock market was going up and down? I think a lot, yeah. and it definitely affected the timing and the ability to raise money. It also frightened it frightened a number of private equity firms that were interested in the company because they weren't able to get the same kind of financial backing. And the fact that Apex had that financial backing continued to distinguish it. The other wound care company that tried to buy us was not able to get the financial wherewithal to go forward. So now looking back on it, you've been on both sides of the equation. What do you think are the, is really the recipe for a successful merger? Um, not just PE, but in general, successful merger? Yeah, in general. So I think, you know, it, it sounds trite to say this, but absolute strategic alignment. I'm very proud of the way the lifestyle deal happened with KCI, you know, and I feel, I feel blessed that I've been successful, you know, whether it's Agincourt or Ambion or what for buying ABI, with ABI is that, if you have the two parties, I never believe in bolt-on acquisitions. I never believe in them. I believe in strategic acquisitions that fill a need, fill a niche, and that you can culturally, that there's cultural alignment, and then you can get the two operations working together. I never see uh, M&A transaction. If that's not true, it doesn't work. You know, it just becomes, you know, two companies batting their heads back together. So I do think it takes a lot of time. You always are going to have somebody you work for. It takes a line, you know, a lot of alignment with the people who are the ultimate decision makers. You have to have a great business case. You have to believe in it, and you have to execute. And so what are you doing today? <laughs> 
Federal Reserve Board for one. Besides all but your I'm, I'm having, hobbies. I'm having a lot of fun. I feel like it's my third career from after Kodak, J&J, and then some smaller companies, ABI and KCI. Actually, my fourth career now, I'm involved with venture capital. So um, I got involved with it after I left KCI, and I'm having a huge amount of fun. We're out raising money for a new portfolio. We have 12 companies in the portfolio now. So I'm building young management teams. I'm evaluating a lot of great technology. I hope to be able to help these companies exit you know, into the medical device and life sciences space, because that's the focus of the fund. So it's, it's evolved to be very good. I'm very much enjoying the Becton Dickinson board. I think the BD board is definitely world class. I'm enjoying that tremendously. I, I mentioned the Fed already, and then I have my ballroom dancing. Mm -hmm. um, and I have... Um, uh, a number of things, other kind of charitable. We're also in a mode right now. We formed our own foundation, my husband and I. We look at grants that are focused on higher education. So we've established an endowed professorship at the University of Illinois, endowed professorship at the University of Texas, um, and then also um, supporting the performing arts. So I have a lot of variety in my day. I have less stress than I used to have. Um, but it's, um, it's turned out to be very good. I will tell you it was very difficult because the KCI thing, as much as I had planned it, was relatively abrupt. Yeah. So I'd say January through you know, March, April of last year was a lot, not so much fun. But it turned out that you know, there is life after a big company, and you can kind of remake yourself. And, and here I am. Will we, will we see you again at the helm of a big company? If the right company comes along, yes.